Let's get into the lesson this morning. We are still in our walk through the Gospel of John, but we're going to take a break from the text of John, so we're not going to be really embedded in any text in John. We're going to talk about some of, um, something that comes up in John and in all the Gospels, in fact, that I thought it would be worth our time to take a little bit of a deep dive into this subject this morning. So we're going to talk about Jesus, son of David. And the reason we're going to do that is because there are several um, titles that are attributed to Jesus throughout his ministry. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the one that he likes to use of himself the most, and that is son of man. And at a later time, we'll do a lesson on that. But the title that the people, the Jewish people around him, attributed to him more than any other was this, son of David. And the conversation comes up frequently throughout the Gospels, not very often in John, but it does at certain times. For example, if you go back to John chapter 7, after he gets done speaking publicly, it says, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. And we've already done a lesson on that. We talked about what they meant by the prophet, referring back to a promise God had given about Moses that like him, God would raise up a prophet from among the people that they were to listen to and say they were looking for the fulfillment of that prophecy. And so they said, some of them said, this is the prophet that was promised through Moses. Others said he is the Messiah. And we're going to talk about that term a little bit today. What did they mean by Messiah? What did that have to do with anything? But still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? That's where Jesus was known to come from. We think it was his name, but it wasn't. How did they refer to him? Jesus of Nazareth, right? Which is from Galilee. So how can he be the Messiah if he came from Galilee? Does not Scripture say, and they're talking about what they were expecting of the coming Messiah. Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Well, of course we know Jesus was born in Bethlehem, even though he came from Nazareth, but it just goes to show what the people were expecting at the time. They're thinking about the coming of the Messiah. They already have specific expectations. When Messiah comes, he has to fulfill these promises that God made to us in Scripture. That's how we're going to know that this is the Messiah. One of the things they were looking for, as we see in this text, is that he is a descendant of whom specifically? David, King David. And so was Jesus a descendant of David? And what does that have to do about him wearing the title Messiah? What does Jesus' relationship with David have to do with his identification as Messiah? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to move rather quickly because we've got a lot of material to cover, and so I'll just give you a heads up. If this is something you're interested in and want to spend more time in, it might do you well to write some notes today, take some notes so that you can go back and look at some of these later on. Or... If you'd like, just another reminder, this will be on our YouTube channel, it'll be on Facebook, and it'll be on our podcast as well. So you're welcome to go back and listen anytime. In John chapter 10, this is the passage we looked at last week, Jesus said this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. This conversation we talked about at length last week, Jesus referring to himself as the good shepherd or the model, exemplary shepherd, 
comes from a passage that we also looked at last week. Jesus is taking us back to a passage in Ezekiel, specifically Ezekiel chapter 34. I read that passage, which was rather lengthy last week, but I skipped over one of the most beautiful, important parts of that passage, which is another prophecy about the coming Messiah, another promise that God makes about who he was going to send. If you remember that passage, one of the things we read is this, Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. In that chapter, God is very critical of Israel's leadership, how they have failed Israel over and over and over again and have scattered God's people and led them astray instead of taking care of the flock as God had tasked them with doing. And so he says, I'm going to hold them accountable and I'm going to send a better shepherd. This is what we skipped over last week that I want to bring to your attention this morning. Verses 23 and 24. He says this specifically, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So when God says, I'm going to send you a better shepherd, who is the shepherd that they should be looking for? And God's very specific here. Who is the shepherd going to be? David. So God is going to send David to be prince and shepherd over them. Now, two questions need to be asked about this text. And we're going to deal with both of them, but the, the majority of our time is going to be spent answering this first question this morning. Question number one, thinking about that promise, is this. What does this have to do with David? Because where was David when the book of Ezekiel was written? He was dead and buried. In fact, King David died around the year 970 B.C., which puts that about four uh, centuries prior to the events that are recorded for us here in Ezekiel. So is God saying, I'm going to raise David from the dead and make him king again? Or what is he saying? What does this have to do with a king who has been dead for 400 years? So that's the question I want us to think about as we begin this morning. In order to answer that, we're going to take a walk through some other promises that God made, some other prophecies about the coming Messiah. First of all is Jeremiah chapter 23, if you'd like to turn over there with me. Jeremiah chapter 23, and I do hope you'll follow along this morning. Jeremiah 23, we're going to read the first six verses. In Jeremiah 23, we read this. Woe to the shepherds. Sounds familiar, right? Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend to my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. This is one of the keys that you need to understand about what God's people were expecting from the coming Messiah, that when God holds these false shepherds accountable, and he himself comes to shepherd his people again, one of the things he's going to do is he's going to take the scattered flock and bring it back together again. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. 
I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I've driven them, will bring them back to the pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. And then he says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. So the two halves of the divided kingdom will come back together and they will live safely together. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. So here we have, much like the passage in Ezekiel, another indictment against the shepherds of Israel with yet another promise. Like the one in Ezekiel 34, here in Jeremiah, it's a promise to deliver them through, not David, but a branch of David. Now, what is a branch of David? We're going to talk about that. The branch of David is presented here as a model king. He's going to be a king like the kings were always supposed to be. Now, did Israel always have model kings? No, they did not. They had some really, really corrupt and lousy kings. They had some good kings that led them into periods of reform. You think about Josiah and his reform, but they had some terrible, terrible kings who led them further and further into apostasy and away from the relationship that they were called to have with their God and their Creator. But when this branch of David comes, he's going to be an answer to the problem of this terrible leadership in Israel. And like he's a model shepherd in Ezekiel 34, he's a model king here in Jeremiah. If you go back to Isaiah now, in Isaiah 10, so let's kind of work our way backwards in time. And Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, these are all prophets that were prophesying at a time when either Israel was about to go into captivity or at a time when Israel was into captivity. And so they're full of either warnings about what God is going to do or promises about what God was going to do in the future. So we're kind of moving our way back in time. And now we're in Isaiah. And we're in Isaiah chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 33. The end of Isaiah 10 and a little bit into chapter 11. See the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the bows with great power. The bows with great power. He's picturing this giant forest. And God is going to clear cut the forest. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty ones. So if you imagine God's judgment, like someone comes in and just clears out this beautiful thick forest, and there's nothing left then but what? A field of stumps, right? That's all that's left after God's judgment has come. It's kind of a hopeless picture. But God doesn't leave his people without hope, because look at what happens next. As we move into chapter 11, it says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Have you ever cut down a tree, a living tree, down to a stump? And not treated it, not done anything else, just cut it down to a stump. What eventually happens? Eventually, a shoot will come up. We did this in our backyard a few years ago. We had a tree that was tearing up the sidewalk and growing over the roof, and so we cut it down, and sure enough, the next spring, there's one, and there's another, and there's another, and things started growing all over again, right? So God is picturing, now I've, I've clear-cut the forest, but here's this one stump. And from that one stump is what? New life. The promise of hope and new life, this new shoot that comes up out of that stump, except this stump is a stump of Jesse. Now, who is Jesse? The father of David. 
This is about that promise to David again. And it says, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So now we're back to this branch of David. So we get the idea here that God is talking about lineage. Think about a family tree and the different branches, right? You've got a stump of Jesse. From Jesse comes David, and from, from David comes this branch. We're talking about the lineage of David that God is going to be at work in and through in order to fulfill his promises. He goes on about this branch of David, and he says specifically this, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So we've got this, mod, this, this descendant of David as a model shepherd in Ezekiel. We've got this descendant of David as a model king in Jeremiah. And here in Isaiah we've got this descendant of David as just a, a, a model ruler who will bring about righteousness, injustice, the very things that God's people were lacking and were so desperately in need of. And this is what will happen as a result of this branch of David coming. Verse 6, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. That's not the world as we know it, is it? You don't let a wolf in with the sheep. But this branch of David is going to bring about a peace that the world had never conceived of before. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and we're taken back to this picture of creation as God made it good and perfect before the fall in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples the nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious in that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria and lower Egypt and upper Egypt and Cush and Elam from Babylonia from Hamath and from the islands of the Mediterranean God's going to bring peace he's going to bring righteousness he's going to send the shoot of Jesse who will be the model king and the model shepherd and he will gather his people back together these are the promises that God makes concerning this branch or descendant of David where does all this hope in one of David's descendants come from? Why are these prophets so certain that God is going to do all of these great things through one of David's descendants? Where are they getting that hope from? And that's an important question to answer. And so let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 13. In order to answer this, let's go back to the life of David for just a few minutes. And I want to point a couple things out. Number one, I want us to think about David's anointing. And the reason this is important was it will become clear in just a minute. So we have two different times that David is anointed as king in David's life. Josh read the first or the second one for us. 
But I'm going to go back to the first one here, chronologically speaking. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. In 1 Samuel 15, God gives Saul, who is the first king over the Israelites, a specific job to do. I want you to go in and completely destroy the Amalekites. Saul doesn't do it. He does not obey the voice of the Lord. And so through Samuel the prophet, God tells Saul that I'm going to remove you from being king. And it begins a very sad period in Saul's life where he begins to go a little bit crazy. But on the heels of that, what's going to happen? Okay, God doesn't like Saul as being king. He's, he's out. Who's in? Who's going to be the next ruler of God's people? And so we get to 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 16, and now we're introduced to Jesse and all his sons. And the prophet is sent there to anoint God's next ruler. And if you remember the story, you've got all of these strapping young lads, but surprise to everyone, it's the last and the least of the sons that is chosen. And he's actually still in the fields tending to the sheep as a shepherd. But in that moment, young David, the shepherd, is picked by God through the prophet and anointed. And so we read, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. A couple things you need to understand about this. This is not a public ceremony. God is not signaling to all of Israel, especially not to King Saul, that I've got my new guy. That would have put David's life in jeopardy had everyone known that. This is God privately signaling to the prophet and to David what his plan for David was. And this is not just a symbolic gesture here. Because what happens to David from that point forward? The Spirit of the Lord fell upon him. And if you know anything about the life of David from this point forward, God is at work through David and Saul just com continues to grow further and further away from his relationship with God. So that's the first anointing of David. The reason in a conversation about anointing is important at all is because the word Messiah, what does it mean? It means anointed one. It's simply what it means. If it, it's a reference back to this idea that God would anoint those who would be ruler over his people. And so when people use the word Messiah or Christ, which is just a translation of that same idea, we're talking about who was God going to anoint as his ruler. And the people of Israel in Jesus' day were living in great expectation of that leader. And we'll talk more about that in a minute as well. This is David's first anointing. His second anointing, his public anointing, where all of Israel now anoints him as king, and he is publicly acknowledged as ruler over God's people. We find that in 2 Samuel chapter 5. That's the passage that Joshua read for us this morning. And I'm not going to read all of it again, but this last statement here, the Lord said to you, this is the people of Israel acknowledging, look, under Saul, things weren't great, but we have hope in you because God said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. They're recognizing that in David, God has chosen someone to lead them to where God would have them to go. We still have to go back a little bit further, though. So what was it that made David special? And what was this promise all about? So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, just a couple chapters after where we were a moment ago, and by the way, this is quoted in the first chapter of Hebrews, which I would encourage you to spend some time in, later today when you reflect on everything we talked about. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 14, we read this, and I wish I had time to read the entire chapter, but, but I don't. 
We've talked about it before. In this chapter, David says to God, look, I'm living in this lavish palace, and here you are still in a tent. I want to build you something great. And God says, I will allow that to happen, but not by you. You're a man of too much bloodshed, and so one of your descendants will do that. And indeed, Solomon did build the temple. But what's amazing in this story is that what God does is he redirects back to David. And he says, I know what you want to do for me, but I didn't ask for any of that, David. So instead, God says, this is what I'm going to do for you, David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. He will be your own flesh and blood. Now, partially this was fulfilled in Solomon, who went on to rule after David. But after Solomon, things spiraled badly out of control for Israel. The kingdom became divided, and David did not always have a descendant on the throne. So there must be some other way in which this promise is fulfilled outside of Solomon. It says, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What does he say? Forever. Forever. That's the promise God made to David that through one of his descendants, his kingdom would be established forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And it's that part that the Hebrew author clues in on in Hebrews chapter 1 when he says, God didn't even talk about the angels like this. It's only to Jesus that he said, you are my son forever. Now, what I want to show you is how this plays into the mindset of the Israelite people during Jesus' days on earth. They are living in great expectation of the fulfillment of all of those promises. They were familiar with every one of those passages we just read. They knew they were messianic in nature, and they were longing for and looking for God's fulfillment of that promise that Messiah, Christ, the Anointed One, the Seed of David, would come and take his throne and rule them the way that God had always promised. That's why in John chapter 7, the passage that we opened with, they're asking the question, well, could Jesus be the Messiah? Well, it depends on where he came from because remember, more than anything else, he has to be a descendant of David. That's why in Matthew, as Matthew opens his gospel account, he begins with a genealogy. Luke does this too. But in Matthew's account, specifically, the very first verse of Matthew's account of the life of Christ is this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of whom? David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the Messiah because he is the son of David. And then he skipped down to verse 17 as he wraps it up. He says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. Yes, he's a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, but also to David. 14 from David to the exile 14 from the exile to the Messiah. He builds everything around Jesus' relationship to David because that was so critical to their understanding of who the Messiah was. This is why in Luke, as Luke records the angel conversing with Mary about what God was about to do through her, he says this, "...you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus." He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him, listen, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. 
So the angel is signaling to Mary, this child you're about to give birth to is the fulfillment of that promise made to David. That's why in Mark chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, in what we call Holy Week, or the week leading up to His eventual arrest and crucifixion, the people are welcoming Him as if He's royalty. And this is what they say. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. What are they signaling in that moment? We've found our guy. He is the Messiah. For this crowd, they had found their guy. He is the fulfillment of the promise made to David. He is the anointed one. And he's going to bring the kingdom back. And of course, we know just a few days later, some of that same crowd is shouting something completely different, are they? Crucify him, crucify him. Because he didn't match the expectations that they had for what Messiah should do. And we'll talk about that in just a second. What were they really expecting? They were expecting the son of David to come in military might like David did and overthrow Roman occupation and restore the land to the people. We could get critical of that, but that's what you and I would have been expecting as well had we been Israelites in that day and time. That's exactly what we would have been expecting. But Jesus came to do something even greater than that. They're also expecting this, and we've hinted at it a couple times, but let me just point out one more passage from Ezekiel, this time chapter 37. Chapter 37 is a famous passage because in the first half of that chapter, it's the Valley of the Dry Bones, which some of you may know. What we don't always pay attention to is the second half of that chapter, which was, is equally as important. In that chapter, the prophet is told to take a stick that represents the northern tribes and a stick that represents the southern tribes and join them together into one stick because some of those tribes had never returned from their exile. They're still scattered. All the tribes had never come back together as one as God had promised. And so in Ezekiel 37, it says, My servant David will be king over them. Well, that's in line with everything we've read, right? right? And they will all have one shepherd, again, in alignment with what we've read. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. So what else are they expecting? They're expecting the dispersion to come back together in the land. Kick out the Romans Bring back the Israelites. Restore us to what we were under King David. This is what they are expecting. And it's all over in their language. This is what they were hoping Jesus would be. Now, Jesus fulfilled all of this and more. Just not exactly the way that they were expecting. And we can talk about that in another lesson if you'd like. So the answer to question one is Jesus. Right? The answer to that first question is simply Jesus. What is the answer to the second question? Well, what is the second question, first of all? Is the shepherd human or divine? The answer is also Jesus. Here in this text, if we go back to Ezekiel chapter 34, we find God talking about 
the raising up of one of David's descendants to be that ultimate shepherd. Okay, so a human, right? A descendant of David. But in that same chapter, he makes this statement in verse 15. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. And so the question we have to ask is, okay, well, which is it, God? Are you yourself going to come down? Will it be a divine leader? Or will it be a human, a descendant of David? Which one is it going to be? We find an answer to that question from the mouth of Jesus himself. Back in John chapter 10 that we looked at last week. Where twice, in verse 11 and verse 14, he says simply, I am the good shepherd. So if he is the fulfillment of the promises made that God would send that shepherd from the house of David, then we know two things. We know he's human because he's standing there in the flesh, but we also know what? He's divine. Because what does John open with in his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is talking about Jesus' divinity all throughout his gospel. We spent a lot of time talking about it in this journey. He is all God, but he's also all what? Verse 14, the Word became what? Flesh and tabernacle, the dwelt among us. As we enter into this season right now where we start to look forward to celebrating that great act of incarnation where God took on flesh and dwelt among us, that baby in that manger, what does it represent? Divinity and humanity coming together in one in a way God only God could do. So what is the answer to that second question? Was the shepherd God promised going to be human or divine? The answer is, well, he was going to be Jesus. He was going to be both. And that was certainly a surprise to the Israelites. And so you bring all of that together, and what we end up with is a very interesting passage in Matthew chapter 22. And I hope you'll turn over there with me. Matthew 22. I know I'm going over time. I'll try to wrap this up quickly. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 41. Matthew twenty-two forty-one. 41. When the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, listen to this question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now, you know the answer to that just based on all the passages we just read. What's the answer to that question? According to Scripture, whose son is he? Son of David. So this is what they say. The son of David, they reply. They know the answer to that question. But then Jesus throws them for a loop. He said to them, How then is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, refers to the Messiah as Lord? And he quotes from the 101st Psalm, passage that is the most often quoted passage in the New Testament about the Messiah, when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So he's referencing a passage they knew, a passage that they knew was talking about the coming Messiah, a passage they know is written by David, and a passage in which David refers to the coming Messiah not as my son, but as my what? My Lord. My Lord. So Jesus' question is, okay, if the Messiah is only the son of David, then how is it that David refers to him as my Lord? I'll tell you what, my dad's called me a lot of things in my life. My Lord is not one of them. So how is it that you've got David referring to his son as his Lord? 
If David calls him Lord, he asks in verse 45, how can he be his son? And they had a very good comeback. It was this. No one could say a word in reply. <laughs> that was their comeback. I mean, he totally flabbergasted them. How do we possibly answer that? What is Jesus trying to get them to understand? That it's not just a man you're looking for. It's not just a man. It's a Lord. Human and divine in one. And only Jesus can satisfy that. In Revelation chapter 22, one of the last things ever recorded for us in Scripture from the mouth of Jesus is this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star, this King of kings and Lord of lords, this lamb that was slain, the one in chapter 5 who's brought out to the amazement of the whole throne room in heaven, is the only one who can open the seals. The one sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He is the root and offspring of David. Is he human or is he divine? He's both. And he's Jesus. So where does that leave us today? Well, first of all, I hope it gives you great confidence in who Jesus is. That he is who he claimed to be. I hope it gives you confidence in the story of God as it unfolds in Scripture. I hope it's giving you some things to think about. Maybe some homework to do this week. But here's what it does for me. I have in ministry been called on to mourn with a lot of people. Sometimes in the very midst of tragedy. And I learned a long time ago that the worst thing you can say to someone who's mourning is I know what you're going through. If you don't know what they're going through. You ever had someone say that to you? I know we mean well when we say that, but if you don't know, you don't know. So why would you say it? Why do I bring that up? Sometimes I think we feel detached from our Savior. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, right? Yes, but He's also my shepherd. And He cares deeply about me, His sheep. And you can imagine a situation where the worst sound in a shepherd's ears are the bleeding of the sheep because he's got to hear it all the time, right? Not this shepherd. Not this shepherd. Because he cares so deeply for the welfare of the sheep. And when you go to your shepherd and you lay at his feet your heartache and your concerns and your needs and your desires and your questions, you're not going to find a shepherd who says disingenuously, I know what you're going through. You're going to find a shepherd who can say, in all honesty, I know what you're going through. And so I want to leave you with this passage out of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, the Hebrew writer says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So, let us then approach God's throne of grace with what? Confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I want to give you an invitation this morning. 
to come to the throne of God, not sheepishly. See what I did there? But in confidence. Because your shepherd knows what you're going through. Your shepherd cares about what you're going through. And your shepherd wants so badly to lead you into greener pastures. If you have a need this morning, won't you come forward and let us know what it is so we can serve you. Let's stand and let's sing together. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before, O oh my soul. I will worship Your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing Your song again. Worship your holy name. 
worship your holy name.